I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome to the Fried Egg Golf Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison. And today I'm talking with David Cannon about his illustrious career in golf photography. It's hard to sum up David's accomplishments in tournament golf photography. He's been at it for 45 years at this point. He's been on site for somewhere in the range of 200 men's and women's majors. And he's captured many famous images, including the one you all know of Seve Ballesteros celebrating his 1984 open victory with a, a fierce fist pump. And so we have a lot to talk about. David is a legend, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation with him about his career, some of his experiences with Seve and other great players, his takes on the craft of photography, all sorts of fun stuff on the agenda for today. But before we get to that interview, a quick word about Club TFE. This is Friday Golf's membership. You can check it out at thefriedegg.com slash membership. It's $120 a year, and you get all kinds of perks with it, like exclusive content, a lively member comment section, a monthly virtual hangout with Friday staff, an annual gift, all that kind of stuff. We also recently announced our 2024 Club TFE member guest event, and it's going to be held at a pretty cool golf course. That's all I'll say about that for now. But mainly, I just wanted to speak for a moment about what this membership means for fried egg golf. This is not something where we're buying a yacht with this money. We're not going to be building a massive headquarters with a moat around it. Maybe we'll get a latch for Andy's shed door, but that's really the only luxury we would consider. What fried egg members are actually doing is supporting our ability to make the kind of content that our audience wants from us. Club TFE subscriptions help us get out to tournaments, go see new courses, film those courses, write about them in an in-depth way that would be hard to do with a purely ad-supported model. This is the kind of content we want to do. We think it's the kind of content that you all want us to do, and it's made possible because of Club TFE members. So, if you'd like to support Fried Egg Golf in this way, go to thefriedegg.com slash membership and join us in the club. Okay, David Cannon, thank you for being here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. To start at the beginning, you were a serious competitive player when you were younger. And yeah. you happen to be a member of a, a really great generation of European golfers. So yeah. I'll mention a few names here. Yeah. And maybe you could just tell me about playing with them in your early years. So okay. let's start with the first name, mm -hmm. Sandy Lyle. Okay, Sandy. Yeah, he was good friends. Well, still is a good friend. Um, I first played with him. Well, in the same competition as him. First time I saw him was in 1973 when I played in a boys tournament in the midlands and he lived fairly close to me you know we're talking 50 miles away um yeah he won that by a country mile 
and I was very, very green at that stage. And it was if I broke ninety both rounds, I was. I think I did well. I can't remember exactly the scores, but I know he won by a country mile. But so I actually spent quite a lot of time playing with him over the next probably three years because he's quite local. And I could tell you some stories about Sandy. You know, when you when you um, we were on the same coaching Midland coaching group, and we used to go to a golf course called Woodhall Spa which is now the headquarters of the English Golf Union. But in those days, it was just a, a remote golf club in Lincolnshire, which is in the middle of nowhere in England. But we used to go there for a weekend in the spring and the autumn of every year. And uh, to show you how good he was, that you know he used to have this party trick of standing on a golf ball on the range, half burying it, and then hitting it with an old forward or a clique or whatever we used to call them in those days like a bullet out of this semi-plugged lie and uh, that's where you you knew you were up against it when you started playing with golfers who could do that well speaking of legendary ball strikers the next name on my list is nick faldo yeah well i've known nick again since i played with him in the british youths in 1975 and um you know when you have a sort of almost pivotal moments in your life that you're you suddenly realise that perhaps you're not going to go the right way. That's where I hit my first obstacle, wall, whatever. When um, the, the last hole at panel in Yorkshire is downhill par four. Only in your dreams is it drivable. And I think he drove that green three days in a row. And it's super narrow, out of bounds on the left. And I'm standing there thinking, I'm going to hit a five iron off this hole because it's downhill. It was in the summer and it was run down there and hit a wedge on. And this guy, apparently, well, I didn't see all of them. I saw one of them. Um, he uh, drove the ball onto the front edge of the green. And that's what, he's just a different class from the word go. And the noise off the club was just epic. And he was using the big size ball at that stage because we still had the option to use the uh, British ball, 1.62, which I always did because it went further and it was easier to use in the wind. But he, from that stage, from the first go, he was on an American size ball because he knew where he was going in life. <laughs> so he, he was he was playing the uh, the more difficult ball because he knew that that was the ball he was going to use when yeah, he was winning you know, majors. He, he, was that, he was that self-confident or self-determined that he knew he had to use a ball he was going to use as professional going forward. Because by that stage, the the, uh, days of the 1.62 were numbered. All right. Now, the final name on my list is probably an obvious one, but you had some experiences with this player pretty early on, and that's Savi Ballesteros. Yeah. So how lucky can you be? Or how, how does fate put you together? So 1976, this was in May 1976, and... I was a member of a golf club, the Leicestershire Golf Club. That's my hometown, Leicester in England. And um, the European Tour in those days would play, their tournaments would finish on Saturdays. You know, Sunday was still Sunday. And um, the tournaments would be held in a, in a well, the, the tournament was held in Coventry, which was 15 miles from Leicester. And then my club was hosting a Pro-Am. So the Pro-Am wouldn't be on a Wednesday before all tournaments as they are nowadays, it was on the day after. So the Sundays were usually the Pro-Am days, and my club hosted this um, European Tour Pro-Am. And um, I was very luckily given one of the spots. The host club was allowed to give uh, four people, one, one team of three, I think, three three members and then the pro. And we drew Savio Ballesteros. 
as the pro in our group. And so a golf course that I had played probably, oh God, in the summer I would play, you know, if I was at home, I'd play that twice a day. From 1973 onwards, I was playing it all the time. I knew every blade of grass on that golf course and he hit the ball into places we'd never seen. More because he was so long. He hit it so amazingly and it was so long. And his putting wasn't actually, as we all remember it, you know, epic, basically. So he struggled on the greens and I probably just about matched him for a score at the end of the day, but purely because I knew how to putt around those, that course. And it was just later that year. Yeah, I mean, two months later, he's runner-up in the Open to Johnny Miller at Birkdale. So, but I mean, you could see the flair. He played some amazing flop shots and stuff like that. He wasn't scared where the ball was going to go in any way. You know, if I look back at it, you know, it's only eight years later, I got my famous picture of Seve which you can see behind me, you know, on the 18th green at St Andrews. Who could ever have dreamt? I hadn't even picked up a camera in my life at that stage. Well, there you go. That's how life goes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, let's let's get to that transition that you made. At some point, you got introduced to sports photography. So tell yeah. me about how that happened. Oh, well, I'd always loved photography. So I, w- I was very lucky to go to a private school in England. My parents scrimped and saved to send me to a what could be a pretty famous school now, because it looks like Prince William's boy's probably going to go there. St. Edward's in Oxford, known as Teddy's. And um, my study at boarding school was plastered with sports pictures. I used to cut them out of the newspapers and out of golf magazines. And most of the other boys in in this all-boys public school in those days would have either semi-naked, because you weren't allowed naked girls in those days, because it was still pretty prim and proper, um, or pop stars on the walls. So I was a bit of an outcast, you know. So who's this weirdo with Tony Jacklin and Tom Weisskopf and Jack Nicholas and Lee Trevino plastered all over his study wall? And uh, I suppose that's my love of sports photography started from there. I always loved looking at sports pictures. And I was very, very lucky to A, meet a couple of incredible people in Leicester that my dad was in uh, advertising and he used a photographer, a studio photographer stroke. He actually ran the Leicester News Service side of photography. So in other words, if there was a, a story in the Leicester area, he'd be phoned up by the national newspapers to go and cover it. And he also was the photographer for Leicester City Football Club and Leicester Tigers. And so um, I, I was introduced to Neville, uh, Neville Chadwick at a um, publicity club dinner that I went with my father to and my mother and we got on incredibly well straight off and uh, he also happened to have a very lovely daughter at that stage (laughs) who I then promptly started to date and uh, it's amazing how these things start but um, yeah I borrowed a camera off my sister she had a nice old Russian zenith or something and I started clicking away and obviously golf was my first target and there was another girl who I used to play in mixed events in Leicester and round around England very good player scratch player and uh, she wanted some pictures to give to the local magazine and I said I'll come and try and take some pictures of her and um, sure enough started taking pictures and they were used and I thought no, this is quite fun I showed them to Neville and he said well you should probably do do a bit more of this and he said how would you like to come down to the to the rugby think it was on a Thursday or a Wednesday afternoon and um, at that stage I was also 
in another job, my job in those days, but I was selling nylon sheets, believe it or not, nylon bed sheets. And <clears throat> that again had come through my father introducing me to somebody else in the textile business. And I got this lovely, easy job selling these sheet bed linen, which gave me time to play golf and a free car. And it was a perfect job, really, but I was pretty bored, if I'm being honest. And um, I'd managed, I still had my original car that I'd used before I got this job. And I just on a whim that one afternoon before I went to this rugby match, I went down, flogged the car, got three or four hundred pounds for it, I think. Then went straight to a place, a camera store in Leicester, which I was lucky because it was about the cheapest camera store in the whole of Britain was based in Leicester. And funnily enough, the guy who owned that camera store was a member of my golf club. So all things fitted into place. And I managed to buy a really nice Canon camera and a, and a small telephoto lens. And so I was down at this rugby match feeling very proud of myself. And Neville said, well, you look after my cameras while I run up and down. And in, in rugby photography, if you can, you run up and down the side of the pitches. And um, so he said, just sit in the corner and I'll give you two tips. And here's a couple of rolls of film. And I said, well, okay. Fine. That said, fill the frame, number one, because in, in when you were using film, that was really important. It's not like digital nowadays where you've got the ability to crop in onto a file. In those days, what you got on the negative was what you played with. So the more you could put on a negative, the better. And he said, focus on the eyes of the subject, which is still the most important thing in photography to me. Because the first thing you look at it, when you look at a page, is the, the eye of the subject. It's, you, you you wouldn't notice it necessarily, but your eyes are drawn straight away to the eyes of whoever's on the pitch uh, on on the picture. So I sat in the corner and um, clicked away. I think I took about a roll and a half of um, film, which is you know probably about fifty pictures, I suppose. And um, I met up with Neville at the end of the game, and we drove back to his office. This is all how it worked in those days. And he said, "Where are your rolls of film?" And I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well, I'm going to." put them on with mine because the tanks used to take five rolls of film at one and he had three and I had one and a half and so he processed my two rolls of one and a half rolls of film and he came out of the dark room and he was holding up the strip of negatives and he said that's a nice picture and I said straight away I said to him that's when the scrum half was nearly flattened by an enormous um, New Zealand rugby player and he said yeah I said well I remember taking that and I thought that might be a nice picture and sure enough it was lovely and then the next day, he said, I'm going to send this to the newspapers. And I thought, well, that's, that's amazing, you know. And um, in those days, it was so union controlled. He wasn't allowed to use my name because I wasn't a member of the National Union of Journalists. So it all went under his name. <laughs> anyway, he phoned me up the next morning and he said, uh, go and buy the, the Express newspaper. Sure enough, there in the Express was that picture. And if you can say that your life changed overnight, that was the moment that set me off. From then, every bit of spare time I had, I was taking pictures. You know, I wouldn't play golf on a Saturday or a Sunday. I'd go to football games if they were on, or rugby, or I'd go to, um, there's a motor racing circuit near me, near Leicester, Mallory Park. I'd go and photograph bikes there, or, or Silverstone for the Formula One, you know, just because I could get credentials. I got it through his Leicester News Service. So it was great. So um, I just learnt for free, basically, and... I got film from him for nothing, uh, but he never paid me a cent in a year and a half or two years that I was doing work for him. But my God, I learned quickly and it was so much fun. As you got more into photographing golf tournaments, 
what was your learning curve like? What did you do incorrectly at the beginning? And what did you learn to do right at golf tournaments as you got more experienced? All I can say is those first two tips, they they stuck in my brain. And they're still there today, to this day. And so that was a big concentration factor for me. I was always looking to try and get as close as I could to the subject because we didn't have the zoom lenses that we have in these day, in nowadays that are high quality. So you had a fixed focal length. So you had to be as close as you possibly could to fill the frame. So that was number one. Number two was attention to background. And I made loads of mistakes with that in the first place. And, you know, on a golf course, you always have these bloody spectator ropes, excuse my language there, but spectator ropes, and they cut through the pictures. So that's one thing I learned to avoid very quickly in photography. And then um, also the use of the light, because we're shooting on film in those days. It's again, film, you have to be spot on with your exposures. Whereas, uh, you know, you can, there is, there is room for maneuver on the digital cameras, you can lighten things quite dramatically, or you you, you still, if you overexpose it, you're still in, prob- in, in trouble with digital. But if you're underexposed, so you get a little bit, it's amazing what you can get away with. Whereas um, on film, you had to be spot on. And so I learned that very quickly. Um, but I say that, you know, the backgrounds became a really important part. And then also the use of the sun, because, you, you know, t- for most people, you'd think you'd want to have the sun behind your head at the subject. Yes, you do for the first hour and a half of a day on a golf course and the last hour and a half but in the middle of the day it's horrific because you they're all wearing visors now and you don't see anything under those you can just see on my eyes already you know and in film that's a brute to deal with so there was a lot of that learning curve as well so backlight in the middle of the day full lit first hour last hour i'd like to ask you about a few special experiences that you had with Savvy Ballesteros, uh, about uh-huh. whom uh, you uh, put together a, a book, a lovely book of uh, photographs a couple of years ago, simply yeah. called Sevi. Um, yeah. First of all, there's that famous photo that you've already mentioned of him celebrating his winning putt on the 18th green at St. Andrews at the 1984 Open. Yeah. You know, building off of what you've just said about your, your, acquiring of techniques of photographing yeah. golf tournaments as you started to get more experienced. Yeah. Could you just give me the story behind getting this photo? So um, obviously Seve is my hero and that was my uh, third open championship. Uh, 82 was my first one at Troon as a professional photographer. I actually went to 79, but only for the practice days because I couldn't get a professional credential at that stage. So um I was still pretty green, if I'm being honest. And it was a boiling hot week. I remember it was really hot, dry, open championship at St. Andrews. And, you know, Watson was on the on the cusp of winning yet another open championship in the final round. And so you, with golf, there's always that, where do I go? Do I follow Seve or do I wait for Watson on 17? Because 17 is always an amazing hole for pitchers. And if you go to St. Andrews, I literally have a rule that or I say to people, and only jokingly, because it doesn't always happen, but I say you can photograph a tournament at St. Andrews, staying behind the first green, going to the second tee, walking across to the approach to the 17th green, standing behind the 17th green and behind the 18th tee, and on the 18th green, you don't need to go any further because everything seems to happen, and it's the best place for pictures. 
But anyway, Savi played 17, obviously got a par. And at that point, he was, I think he was one behind at that stage when he went on to the 18th tee. And I thought, right, Savi's, you know, I, he's been my hero since that first day I played with him in 76. And I thought, right, I'm going down 18. So I walked down 18. I watched his second shot from behind the green. I saw where the ball finished. And then I lined myself up because if you look at the background there on the picture, it's neutral. And I was using a 400 2.8 lens, which makes the background go out of focus. So you isolate the subject. And there were no ropes in the background and luckily no TV cameramen or anything to take away from what he was doing. And I was actually lucky because A, I had a feeling that, you know, this could be a really mega moment. So I put a fresh roll of film in. And that was actually quite critical because, you know, filming those days, my camera would run at four, four and a half, five frames. I think it was meant to do five frames a second, but you just had to have batteries that are fully souped up and boiling hot to get them to do that. So I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, you know, I've only got seven seconds worth of film here. And if you look at that moment, from the moment he hit the putt to the moment where he hugs his caddy is actually well over seven seconds. And basically the whole putt, I hit it, got him hit the putt. And then when he started celebrating, I just put the finger down in a manual focus, just praying that I kept it all in focus. He didn't start running around or doing something that makes it even more difficult. And, um, you know, he, he sort of had the putt, hold the putt. And then just as he goes up to his caddy to embrace his caddy, run out of film. Literally, I used a whole roll of film on that. And, you know, nowadays, if you're on digital camera, you can have 10,000 frames usually on those cards and you'd still be going so that was and then then I've got the mo then I think to myself right I've got to mark that film because I'm going to make sure that one is marked and I want to make sure that all the other films that I processed from that day were exposed properly so I basically and then I meant to drive down to London the next morning with the film this is again a massive contrast to how it worked nowadays. So, but I was so excited about the potential of that film, and I had a, a cousin of my wife who was carrying my cat, well, well, helping me out that week with me. So we shared the drive back down to London, which is about eight hours in those days from St Andrews overnight. And I was sat outside the office for when the darkroom chap came in in the morning, and I gave him my first lot of film, and then. I waited for that to come out, which takes about an hour and 10 minutes once the machine's up and running. I saw that the exposures was, were good on that, so I just backed myself that I'd exposed it right, put that key roll of film in. So I probably saw those pictures about half 10, 11 o'clock in the morning. And of course, then you get the eyeglass out and you start going through them. And as it's going through the sequence, and if you see the sequence, his fist pump was towards the clubhouse, which was actually at about 45 degrees where I was standing. So I chose my background for the background, that angle for the background. And then he suddenly turned towards me and just starts pumping the air like this. And that was at, right at the end of the film. And uh, I still maintain to this day, he must have been like a magnet drawn to me because uh, that's the best picture of the whole thing. And um, yeah, it's still probably one of the, the very best golf pictures I've ever taken. And luckily, when I first, when I saw it, I was just like, right, <laughs> that's it. And I, I remember driving down to Slazenger. You know, he wears the Slazenger clothing. And their head office was not very far from us, where our office was in South London. I remember driving over that night with a set of copies 
of these of that slide and uh, getting a phone call the next morning saying they wanted to use it for an advertisement so yeah from that moment onwards that has definitely become one of my, my best ever pictures next up could you take me to the final hole at the european masters in 1993 <laughs> sevi yeah again he was electric that afternoon. You know, this was Seve for you. I think he'd birdied every hole from the 12th on that back nine. And he was miles behind. You know, he was five holes ahead of the leader at that stage. And obviously, by the time he got to the 18th tee, the, he was within one shot, I think, of the leader. And then I could tell from when he hit that tee shot, I thought, oh, I know that, that move of Seve. So that's going way right. And sure enough, it was... In the trees, literally, I don't know exactly how far, six to eight feet from a concrete wall, six foot high concrete wall that housed the swimming pool. And um, I remember him cogitating with his caddy, Billy Foster. You know, Billy, he's got a fantastic sense of humour. Um, one of the great characters of golf, basically. And Billy came out there and he was, no, sorry, no, no, no. Hit it out sideways, hit it out sideways. If you notice also on that film, there's no actual television of that shot. And that's because the director had said to the cameraman, there's no chance of him hitting this shot. I would just stand out in the fairway and wait for him to chip out. Anyway, I just couldn't believe my eyes. And then Billy trundles past me with a golf bag going, no bleep, bleep, bleep chance. And he said, you know, and Seve's in there snorting away on his knees, just looking up into the trees there. And then he just... There's a whoosh. And I, if you look at the angle, if that hit the concrete wall where I was lying on the ground taking this picture, it probably would have come straight at me on the 90-degree angle if it had hit the concrete. But anyway, no noise. And, you know, another thing I've learned in my golf photography is roughly about six seconds. If, they, if a player hits a full shot, a pro, whether it's with a driver or an iron, it's about six seconds from the moment he hits it to the moment it lands. So there's absolutely, there's this silence. There's no noise from the ball going up through the trees. So I think, oh, he's got it out. That's pretty good. And then there's a deafening roar six seconds later. And sure enough, it landed on the front of the green. And then uh, he promptly managed to chip it in from there for an incredible birdie. But very sadly, I think Barry Lane managed to pinch the spoils, which was, yeah, to this day, it was a bit like Stuart Sink pinching that open at Turnbury off Watson. Those two moments would be two of my biggest disappointments in golf. But there we go. Seve was obviously a, a hugely charismatic subject. Yeah. What do you think makes a golfer compelling to photograph? What's what's the it factor there? Well, you know what? I look back to the 80s and one big thing that does stand out is that a lot of the pros in those days didn't wear hats. I don't know whether you've noticed it or whatever, but... And then if you're talking about looking at the eyes of the subject, they're not wearing a hat. It's amazingly easier to get a proper a proper look at somebody. And, you know, Seve hated wearing hats. The only time he ever wore a hat was at the Masters, and that's because he got paid what was in those days was a fat check to wear his horrible Nike hat or whatever he was wearing uh, those weeks. And um, he didn't look... He didn't look anything like in his ha uh, in a hat, did he? And then when he plays in the Ryder Cup, he doesn't wear a hat because you don't have to wear hats in the Ryder Cup. And Nicholas, Nicholas, when he won the 86 Masters, you know, that great golden hair. 
is holding that putt on the 17th, no hat. So in the 80s, I had a great advantage. You could really get someone. Whereas when Tiger comes along, or Faldo through the 90s, he he, he did wear a hat, not often, but he did. Um, but he to still, when he won the Opens, he wasn't wearing a hat. So you get into the 90s and Tiger comes along, and there's, you never you never see a picture or a, a moment of him without his Nike hat. And that brings its own difficulties. The moment you're someone's under a hat. But Tiger's eyes, Tiger's eyes were incredible. Seve's eyes are incredible. And, you know, I, I say that probably if you look through, I had three periods in my life. I went from Seve, who was amazing. Then Norman was pretty amazing to photograph. And then Tiger comes along. And I was really hoping that Rory would rip the, last decade apart and become a huge he's pretty much a a huge superstar but he hasn't kicked on from 2014 like we'd all thought he would so Rory's the next one along but he still hasn't delivered fully he has delivered amazingly but I'm still praying for a a Rory major or two well aside from Seve and maybe even aside from some of the the obvious uh players that that you've mentioned Which golfers have been your favorites to to shoot over the past, you know, 40 some years? Uh, Ernie Els is right up there. Nick Price, Ernie Els, both amazing. Um Nick Price probably the nicest person you'd ever meet in golf. And Ernie who has he has his moments, but uh, as far as a swing and friend, you know, he's been an amazing friend. And um so those two are pretty high up. And then I go into the yeah, Montgomery, Monty, bless his heart, absolutely evil with photographers on a golf course. But if you get him off the golf course, it's probably one of the most charming people you'd ever meet in your life. And really good company. But um, yeah, so, I, you know, I, I, obviously I'm a bit biased to the Europeans because, I, you know, I do come to America, but only really for majors. And, you know, I go to the, oh, I'm going to the Arnold Palmer next week and well, week after next and uh, the players, but... Um, other than those, I'm not really at too many PGA Tour events. So I don't get to know them quite like I, I've got to know the European players. And another thing is I always love doing the Walker Cups because that's where you get to meet a lot of the great players. Certainly an American and, and British players have come through the Walker Cup. So you get an early look at them there. Well, you obviously still do a lot of work on the European tour or what's now known as the DP World the Tour. World tour yeah. You were also there when the European tour was in what many would consider its heyday, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I wonder, you know, what what's your what's your perspective on how things have changed over the years on, uh, on the European tour? What what how are the events different now than than they were back in the eighties? Well, I've got to say, uh I think I I was very privileged and very, very lucky to be part of that generation because yeah, basically the European tour, as it was then, had 80% of the best players in the world playing on that tour week in, week out. And because of that, we got great sponsorship into Asia, you know, in those early days of playing in Asia. And we would have these fantastic tournaments, the Johnny Walker tournaments, especially spring to mind, all across Asia each year we you know, and they they would invite the Freddie Couples of this world or one or two other Americans who were who would travel. You know, you know, it was a shame that the Americans didn't travel as much as the European players, because there's no question 
the European and South African players, they know how to travel and they do travel across the world. Whereas it's one of the things that we're, you know, we're coming up against going forward, I think, is it's going to be getting the Americans out of America. You know, it's all very well for live players because they will go because they're contracted to. But to get them, you know, to get Rory's dream and, and I would sit down with you now and say that's my dream for golf because it hurts so much now to to not be to be going to the players championship and thinking hey we're missing about six or seven players here at least who might have con- who should have been here and would have contended in this event and made it an am- the amazing event it needs to be and it you know Liv has taken that away from us and I think unfortunately we're going to have to live with it <laughs> that's another pun but we are going to have to live with Liv <laughs> And, um, you know, there's got to be a way in, in going forward that golf gets its head together and accommodates this and or creates something that we can work in work for everybody, because it's a damn shame what's happening now. I agree. And I yeah. think that one of the events where things tend to still come together and, and feel, uh, you know, fully formed and authentic is the Ryder Cup. And you've been to many Ryder Cups over the years. Mm -hmm. I wonder which one you remember the most fondly or which one you had the best time shooting. Difficult. I mean, there were so many. We've been so lucky in Europe because we've had such good run. Um, 1985, Torrance's final putt at uh, the Belfry. That that was a pretty amazing. You know, as as a youngster, I'd gone as a spectator to the 73 Ryder Cup at Muirfield where we got absolutely annihilated. And I'd been to the 77 Ryder Cup at Royal Lytham, where, you know, Faldo, Lyle, um, Ken Brown, Mark James, all part of the team, but we got absolutely cremated on that one as well. And then 83, so close in Palm Beach. But then 85, obviously, Tony Jacklin's merry crew, led by Seve, (laughs) basically and um it transformed it the Ryder cup and you know that moment when sam's got his arms up in the air on the 18th green at the belfry is pretty high on my favorite pitchers list and then uh, after that winning in 87 following one which we never dreamt of winning a Ryder cup in america but was probably our strongest you know you have to argue the teams but i reckon that team was pretty strong that year and you know young Elizabeth and then all the uh, Seve at the, his height, Faldo going into his height, Sandy Lyle won the Masters that year, Langer had already won a Masters as well, so that team was pretty strong. And then we took Nicholas down, his, you know, down at his home club, basically, and it, that was an amazing week. And the party after that, the moment in the, there's some pictures in, I've got of Jacqueline, you know, the, the British crowds are unique in golf, you know, they, they are, I'm very biased again, but I think they are unique. They know how to party and they party properly after that. And, you know, suddenly Tony Jacklin and Sam Torrance arrive in this, uh, and Nick Faldo arrive in the, in the um, sort of beer tent, I suppose you'd call it. And they're standing on the table and they're singing and it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And then I was lucky enough to become the official photographer for the team from 1995 till the one in um, Hazeltine, not a great way to end for me, but I did 10 Ryder Cups as the official photographer. And uh, 
that the hardest weeks you could ever imagine working wise and that's kind of why I passed it on to other people at Getty Images because it, it took such a toll those those functions they had to go we all had to go to the functions it was a full-on week I was praying for Friday morning by the time I got to Friday so we could do photograph some golf um but yeah there's some great memories I mean even the ones we lost you know at Brookline and and Kiowa they were epic epic rider cups and if you just take it as a as a neutral they were astonishing you know hopefully uh, we can have a good one at Beth Page because that could be something else with the crowds there. I'm expecting it to be to be really fun. Um, so, yeah, so let's fun hope. in an exclamation um, marks. You know, right. <laughs> yeah, fun, fun in all the all the meanings of that word. Yeah. Um, so you know, if you consider the four men's majors and maybe the five men's majors, if you include the Ryder Cup in that list, mm-hmm. of those, logistically speaking, which one is the hardest to photograph? Yeah, a Ryder Cup's pretty hard because you're having to walk with them all the time. So, you know, physically, that's a really, really hard grind for the Friday, especially Friday and Saturday. And then Sunday, it happens so fast. There's no way to describe as a photographer how fast that thing happens on a Saturday. You know, it's five hours from start to finish, basically, of golf. And it's all over in a blink. So that brings its own different kinds of battles to to as a photographer and then you you know it's being in the right place at the right time for in italy this last one i've i seem to be in the wrong place for everything that happened on that final day it was the most frustrating day i've had in a Ryder cup in my life whereas in paris i managed to be in the right place for everything so you know it's an absolute and i i knew i know what i'm doing and i i knew it was going down and I just couldn't get from the 18th green to the 16th green because I knew it was going to come down to Fleetwood's match yeah that was that was the what was going on there so besides golf what is your favorite sport to shoot um I love football soccer as you'd call it over there but I love football and I did a lot of football I you know I've been to eight world cup finals and um in the 80s and certainly until the early 90s I was doing as much football as I was golf and uh, that's why I actually missed quite a few US Opens for World Cups and European Championship football tournaments which are in June and always clash with the US Open and the PGA I miss a few because it started up the start of the Premier League season or first division season as it was in those days so um, I'm born and bred on football really uh, you know that's how I, I always say to as a sports photographer if you can photograph football soccer you'll photograph any sport because it's so unpredictable it's not like american football where you know on the third down they're pretty much going to throw to a wide receiver most of the time with soccer the only predictable thing is a corner kick but you don't know where it's going your corner kicks and you know other than that it's an absolute lottery so that's a really hard sport to photograph and if you learn that one you'll do any sport so I love that and I love all sports you know I've been I've been to the lots of Olympics as well and you know god that's an amazing thing to do at summer Olympics you know as a sports photographer what an event that is yeah that 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 is sort of that is sort of the apex uh yeah it's so interesting what you're saying about shooting football where yeah. the unpredictability of it is kind of the difficulty because I would have thought initially well 
if you're shooting a football game, then you're then you're in one place, right? You're, it's not like a golf exactly. tournament where you have yeah. to traipse all over all over the property. So that you know, if shooting golf is very physical, like it's yeah. it, it is tiring, especially if you're not in shape. If you're shooting a football game, then then you're kind of in one spot, but it has its own difficulty because you don't know when stuff is going to happen. <laughs> No, it has to arrive in the right focal length. You know, you have to have the right lens on. You know, the amount of times I lost amazing pictures of football because I've chopped someone's foot off because they come too close or it's too far away down the pitch. You know, at least with golf, you ha- you have got a chance of getting to where you can fill the frame, you can be in the right place. But physically, golf is a, is a mission. I've worked out, this is only a, a rough stat, that I've walked from London to Auckland in New Zealand and I'm halfway across <laughs> Australia on the way back to London just covering golf tournaments in my sports photography career you know if you if you work out on your average paces you know average paces I'll do 15,000 a day during a, a average during a um, normal normal tor- tournament day and then you've had another 15,000 for the practice days you know, it's already 60,000 steps a week in a, any sort of tournament. And that gets you a long way very quickly if you're doing 25 to 35 tournaments a year, which I have been doing over the years. And that adds up very quickly. So it's quite physical. Now that we're deep into the podcast here, David, I'd love to get into a little bit of shop talk uh, okay. when it comes to photography. <laughs> Yeah. I do a, I I do a little a little bit of photography. I you know, I of course I'm I'm nowhere near professional with it, but I am curious about some of the some of the specifics of of your process. So, yeah. you know, first of all, what what is your standard gear for shooting a golf tournament? Okay, so um a normal normal tournament, not a major. I'll have two camera bodies that I'll take out with me, which would be Canon R3s I've got currently, which are the new mirrorless ones which has transformed the way we shoot golf, silent shutters. So we're now, you can shoot all sorts of pictures you never dreamt of getting with a film camera. So that's been brilliant. And I have probably take out three lenses with me on an average day, might be four, depending on what course and what the weather's like. So I have a 600mm f4 Canon lens, which is my standard lens, as I call it. which is, you know, a $15,000 massive thing, but absolutely essential for golf photography. And then I have a 70 to 300 zoom, which fills up another sort of mid-size gap. And then I have a 24-105 zoom lens wide angle or a 14 to 35 wide angle. So that pretty much does me. I have a flash. Don't normally carry it out except for the Sunday on a tournament. So have it there for the presentation, and that's about it. But I do have a uh, another body in R5, which is a much, it's super high quality that I use for landscapes, and that may well come out if the course or the event is, you know, when you're on a on an Open Championship when you've got lovely views and stuff, then I'll use that there. So um, you know that's probably nearly forty pounds a gear, and I'm carrying fifteen thousand steps around a golf course in my late 60s so i'm still doing all right this is this is how you stay in such good shape um <laughs> so you've referred a couple of times to switching from film to digital yeah i wonder if you could just sum up for you what has been the impact of of that transition 
Okay, so I was very much a colour slide film shooter in the 80s and 90s because that was, you know, colour photography was the key. Sports Illustrated, all those type of high-end magazines, Golf Digest when they were around, and were all high-quality colour. So everything I shot was on a high-quality slide film. And on an average tournament, this is quite a good sort of comparison, on a day, if I shot 10 rolls of film, that was a big day for me. So that's 360 pictures. And, you know, that's that was a lot in those days. So if you multiply that by four days, five days of the tournament, I might go back home with 60 to 80 rolls of film for processing from a tournament. Now, if I shoot under 3,000 pictures in a morning, I think that's, you know, that's a pretty abstemious morning shooting for me because these cameras go at 30 frames a second in silent mode. So God knows what we'd have done. Just the, the sheer expense of that in the old days of buying the film and processing it would have, you think now we can shoot 3,000 pictures and the only thing you're paying for is electricity for your laptop, basically, and your time. So uh, it's a big radical change and it is more flexible, there's no doubt, but you still have to expose it properly. And, you know, you've got these faster shutter speeds now, which are also in the game. So I can now shoot at sometimes I go up to 10, 12,000 of a second. Whereas in the other, the old days on film, if I shot at thousandths of a second, I'd have been pleased with myself. When I think of the thrill of looking at films on a light box, going through that 36 strip of film uh, or the, sl the mounted slides and just looking through them, and now you just go flying through on your laptops. And, you know, as I say, 3,000 pictures, I can edit that in probably five minutes. Just going through and I'll have it down to 20 pictures in five minutes. And um, and then you can edit them and you can transmit and the world can see them within 45 minutes of coming in with 3,000 frames. You know, if I, if I edit, had to edit 80, 80 rolls of film, that takes me a day to edit that much. So it's... So different. You know, when I when I think about the impact of a change like this, I could kind of go two ways about it, where on the one hand, having more choice of photos would presumably allow you to find the gems and maybe have more of an element of luck or happenstance finding a great photo that you may not have gotten if you were shooting with film. Yeah. On the other hand... Maybe it's changed the discipline a little bit. I remember shooting on film and I remember the sensation of, well, I better, I better do something good here, right? Because I'm going to print this up and it costs a little bit of money and yeah. you know, I, I can't, I can't really change it. And so I'd better do it right in camera the first time. Whereas now that I, you know, use a digital camera, I kind of think, well, I can sort of fix some things afterwards, or I can take a bunch of photos and just see which one is good. And I wonder if that discipline has made me less of a good photographer. You know, what, what's, what's your take on that? It goes both ways. One side of me that says, yes, God, you know, we were different in those days because a, we, we were, pretty good with manual focus in the, in the 80s certainly you had to use manual focus now it's all the way to autofocus which is incredibly accurate um so you had that sort of skill that you had to have and also being aware of how much it was costing you to shoot a roll of film 
by the time you've bought the film, which was, I don't know, I'll say five, five dollars a roll minimum for a color slide film in those days, then you had to process was another five dollars. So ten to fifteen dollars a roll to process and mount it. You multiply that by ten each day. It was pretty getting pretty expensive by the time you got off the aeroplane uh, going to photograph a major golf tournament. Whereas now, you know, you just got, as I say, you take, you buy, you buy your laptop and you can shoot thousands of frames. And the skill of getting that peak moment with film has gone because now the, the digital cameras, they are so fast and so good with the, with the, with the autofocus. You do get a hell of a lot more pictures to choose from. You know, if I could have got the standard of picture I'm getting now, and be trying to sell that in the 70s and 80s and 90s. My God, I've had a front cover of Sports Illustrated every week or Golf Digest every month <laughs> because they're so good. So it's a it's a big change. And we changed, well, I changed personally in 2002 for the World Cup football in Japan where the whole company went all digital because that first Canon uh, digital camera came out, the professional one, uh, EOS 1D. And um, once that hit the scene, there was no brainer. For I still shot film for my course photography right up till 2012. After that, digital cameras got so good that again there was no argument to me. It just didn't make economic sense. Sadly, <laughs> another big technological change in photography is the advent of drones. This yeah. has had maybe more of an impact on golf course photography, which you do a great deal of yourself. Yeah. Um, you know, it, we, we, uh, our, my company does a, a lot of golf course photography. And of course, a lot of it is, is drone. It, it just is, yeah. it, it's a little more efficient and, yeah. you know, and it's, so I don't want you to worry about offending me, uh, with, uh, with any kind of take you might have on drones, but I'm curious to get your opinion on drones and their, their impact on golf course photography specifically. Again, it's one of these funny things. It's like there's two ways to look at it. One is giving you a completely new medium for shooting a golf course. Yes, you could use helicopters, but my God, they were expensive. Well, they are still expensive. B, there's the noise factor. There's everything about using a helicopter that's hard work, and you've got to have an amazing pilot to get you low enough and all this sort of thing. With, with a drone, you've got that amazing freedom to shoot pictures that you would never get with a helicopter and you know again they're fairly reasonable priced i've got these mavic pros and they're astonishing quality from a tiny little camera but i think they can be overused i you know now basically almost everything you see online is drone photography and that's a worrying thing for me because i still i i'm a bit of a Yes, the, the balance is, is finding the balance between a great still from ground level and an uh, awesome aerial. But people use the drones too much is my take on it. So I kind of try to balance it and get quite finicky when I use a drone. It has to be absolutely amazing. One final question for you. As you look forward to, to 2024 here, uh, are there any events that you have circled on your schedule that you're really excited from a photography perspective to to attend? Well, start off with Augusta. I love the Masters. You know, I'm 
getting near to a milestone there. So it's my 39th Masters this year. And bark those two COVID misses, I would have been past the 40, 40 Masters milestone, which might get me a car parking space in the car park. But um, yeah, anyway, I'm really looking forward to that. Forget that comment. But um, yeah, it's um, that's going to be very exciting when I get to 40 Masters because to say that you've walked up and down those hills 40 times is actually quite an achievement, I think. So, um, yeah, so I'm looking forward to the Masters. I mean, the Open I always look forward to, always, always, always. And then we've got a Solheim Cup this year. Um, there's a possibility I'm going to go to Paris for the Olympics, which might be fun. So um, we'll see, but definitely Masters, the Open, PGA Championship I love. And the Valhalla brings back great memories of um, Rory winning there, his last major. So that would be pretty poetic if he goes back there and wins another one. But I'd love him to win the Masters first. Because that, that would put him on a different level to all the others, wouldn't it? And that would be a very fun celebration to, to photograph. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, David, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It was a real honor to talk to you and uh, hope to see you out there at some point. Thank you, Garrett. This episode of the Friday Golf Podcast was produced by Matt Rusius. Thank you, Matt. One quick thing that you can do that would really help us out is to rate and review our podcast. So just go to wherever you're listening to us. And if there's an opportunity to rate it, do that. If there's a place where you can review it, do that. We love hearing feedback from listeners. We always read it. We always get something from it. So that would be great. All right, that's it. Thank you for listening. And we'll be back again soon with another episode.